Welcome to View from the C-Suite, where we have candid conversations with female executives about key business challenges, career advice, and more. This series is brought to you by Wong Duty, the global experience and design unit for Infosys. I'm Skylar Matson, your host and president of Wong Duty. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to our global audience tuning in. Welcome to the fourth episode of View from the C-Suite, Women Leaders in Conversation. I'm Skylar Matson, president of Wong Duty, the Global Experience and Design Unit for Infosys. Thank you so much for joining us today. As with all of our episodes, we wanna engage our audience and we'll be taking your questions during the last 15 minutes of this show. Uh, you can submit them throughout the conversation in the Q&A function right here at the bottom of Zoom. Uh, additionally, join us on Twitter by using the hashtag we always use, women empower, EM power, and that way we'll be able to locate and comment on your posts. I am so excited to introduce today's guest, B Perez from Coca-Cola. B is the Senior Vice President and Chief Communications, Sustainability, and Strategic Partnerships Officer. Yes, it is a big title and it is a big job. It encompasses public affairs, communications, sustainability, marketing, partnerships, B has been recognized globally for her achievements. And I could honestly spend half this episode just sharing those. But to name a few, B is a member of the American Advertising Hall of Achievement, the Sports Business Journal's Hall of Fame. She's been recognized as a conservation trailblazer. I just love that. Conservation trailblazer by the Trust for Public Land. And she was featured as one of the 25 most powerful Latinas on CNN and in People in Espanol. B. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, Skylar, thank you for having me. I'm just trying to keep up with you. All those accolades are, are representative of many, many people, and I tend to follow all of your accolades as well. So I'm excited to be here, and it's quite an honor to be with you and to be one of the guests on your show. Thank you. Thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about such an important topic, superpowers for good, which is a phrase coined by Tracy Wong, the founder of Wong Duty. And for us, our superpower is creativity. And we intentionally focus a portion of our creative energy and our creative talent to do work for causes and organizations we believe in. We've created several anti-smoking campaigns. We've done work for gender wage equality, and most recently for a really important research study on postpartum depression. Uh, for many organizations, using their superpowers for good means corporate social responsibility. It means giving back to their community, to the environment, or supporting specific causes. B, I, I was thinking about the first time that you and I connected in person in January of 2020 at the World Economic Forum annual meeting. I can't believe in January of 2020, we were actually traveling on the other side of the world. Little did we know, you know what was coming. <laughs> Uh, the mission of WEF is to improve the state of the world, and it focuses on the responsibility of business to create a better future. So B, I associate you and your passion. I associate the Coca-Cola company with this mission to do good. And that's what we're talking about today. And I want to start pretty broadly with, tell us how Coca-Cola is using their superpowers for good and how, how you decided where to invest the company's time and resources. Thank you, Skylar. So it's a superpower of people coming together. And for us, it starts with the purpose of why we exist. So of course, we have the business side, refresh the world. 
And the most important part that goes with it is, and make a difference. And what a lot of people may not be aware is that's actually been part of our purpose for many, many years. Um, it's in the core DNA. So for us, it's important to establish the goals based on what we hear from society, but also in a place where we can credibly make a difference in our business. So water, you would expect, comes first, right? So water, it's the most important ingredient in society. It's the most important ingredient in our beverages. So it's the lifeblood of community and it's the lifeblood of our business. So for us, we've been working on water availability, water quality, using less water in our business, and we set goals around water. At the same time, you have to distribute a, a beverage in something. So think of packaging. We know that in today's world, plastic pollution is a serious issue that the world is facing. So what role can we take as a producer to help eliminate that waste? So we created a program called World Without Waste. How do we design in better quality packaging, design out the waste, collect everything that's gotten into the wrong places and prevent it from ever getting there to begin with. So that's the world without waste area. And then of course, I think you'll like this next one, women. We know that women, when they are empowered and they earn a dollar, they give 90 cents of that dollar back to their communities. They give it to education, to programs and to support each other. So we created a program to empower 5 million women by 2020. We did recently accomplish that goal. We over-delivered slightly, so 6.1 million women in over 90 countries, and we're very proud of that. And the work continues. I mean, for us, we now look at, so how, does, how do we think about the interconnectedness of all of these issues in terms of the impact of water on women? As we know, they bear the brunt of having to do the chore and the labor to bring the water to their community. How do we take that away and give them that time back so they can invest in themselves. How do we think about climate resiliency in terms of the connectedness there to women as well? So I could go on and on and on, but for us, it's setting those core priorities that are relevant to society and relevant to our business, and then setting the targets and living by them and making sure that we drive that progress and partner with many others in order to get there. Mm, I love that it's so rooted in your DNA and credibility. That's what you started with. We're, it's, we have credibility in this area. It is water. It is our packaging. It is women and how those three sometimes come together, which I think is such an interesting thought. Has, has leadership, I mean, you've been at the Coca-Cola company for so long. Has everybody always been on board with these initiatives? Do, do you sometimes prioritize one or the, over the other? Has there ever been resistance among any of these three? So yes, yes, and yes. How's that? <laughs> I know that was a lot of right? questions in one. <laughs> right. And I'll start with, actually, if you go back to history for a moment, it really is rooted in the DNA. 1917 is the first time I saw us take serious initiative against water, and that was working with disaster relief and the Red Cross to bring access to water to communities, especially during those times where there were natural disasters. Fast forward to today, still critically important, but we've been on that journey. If I, if I think about women, what I'm really proud of is in 1934, Coca-Cola was the first public company to put a female on its board of directors. And what's interesting is when I go back and read the minutes that are in our archives, it was because women are 70% of our purchasers and we also knew that they stabilized society. So Letty Pate Whitehead Evans was our first female board of director and the first female on a corporate board, a public corporate board. So lots of exciting pieces. And then 1971, we had a chairman and CEO named J. Paul Austin, who first actually addressed the Georgia Bankers Association in terms of recycling and how we could drive change. And we started to do something called life cycle analysis. 
So I give that history because I can't claim to be the first executive to focus on sustainability of the business. While I would love that honor, I'm the first who had a formalized title around it, but it has been something that the company has always debated, discussed, and put initiatives behind. What's a little different in today's environment and where the debates come into play is there's so much to be done, but we're also a business that has to remain focused to be able to drive scale and make a difference. And so how do we choose? And that's where a lot of the debates come in because we know there's a lot to be done. And so how do we stay ultra focused to drive that positive impact where we can make sure that we start to deliver? But the hard part is actually when we have to say no. The hard part is when we say, well, you know, these programs have come our way, but we're going to have to say no because we know that this focus requires us to stay on track and on path and that we might have to revisit it a little later. So, um, and there's even journeys within the journey. So we've always had a target around carbon reduction. We know climate is a huge impact to the world and has all these intersections. Well, in the past, we had a goal, reduce the carbon of the drink in your hand. So for, for this drink, or for really one of our drinks here, this drink, we would reduce the carbon of that package, that beverage by 25%. And a couple of years ago, we started to look at, well, that's not enough. And the debate came in, which is, you know, how do we align up to the Paris Accord? How do we make sure we set a science-based target to do more? But that's going to require us to invest more. It's going to require us to bring our systems together. And so where we moved is we did. So for 2030, we've set a science-based target to reduce the aggregate carbon, the total carbon by 25%. That means from ingredients all the way to distribution and back through that full circle. And so that's where the debates come in, which is what specifically do you do within those targets? How much do you invest? And what are the trade-offs? And then and when you have to say no to something that you know is really important to society, but your business is incredible in that space, or we have more work to do before we can establish that goal, that's where the debates come in. So I feel fortunate that we have a history in our senior leadership really paying attention we have the current leadership today who's worked embedded in the business, but also our operators and our partners who've been there side by side with us. Wow. Coca-Cola, since 1934, having a woman on its board and that sort of setting the track for where this company is going. I would imagine as you're having these debates and you're making these tough decisions because you want to do it all, how you prioritize, I would imagine some data comes into play and that that might, are you, how are you using data to inform where you invest your superpowers? Yes. The more data, the better. As you know, data has evolved over time. And so now it's a little bit easier to have access to the data before we would have to do all these studies and we'd pull out sort of the printed pages and look at the trends. Today, everything is essentially digitized. So you have to make sure you're also asking the right question. And that's really important because data to inform our decisions has to tell us so Number one, are these the right goals that we're setting? Are we truly listening to what people want from us? And are we truly driving a difference versus just doing it within our four walls? And so that kind of data is important is to listen to the stakeholders, including community, government regulators, NGOs. The other piece around data is how do you track if you're truly making progress? We operate in over 200 markets. We're a very big system. We have independent bottling companies who distribute our brands. So how do we make sure that we're making it easy for our system to report out? And that's taken us some time. So it used to be very manual 10 years ago. Today, we use a system that is very digitized, user-friendly. They can just use drop-down menus and populate the data. 
that allows us to actually have better transparency as a business and better transparency to the reporting that we offer to the public. And so if you go to our website, you'll see we're very transparent. We're able to provide better data. Five years ago, 10 years ago, it was hard. We had to have a lot of caveats to, you know, it's a manual pull. It might have a 20% margin error, you know, and so the better we can use data to support decision making, but importantly to measure and track and report out, I think that's going to continue to make us more efficient and effective, which is what we're trying to drive towards. Wow. And you have so many stakeholders as you just started listing out. It's not just your customers, it's your shareholders, it's government. There's so many regulations involved. But I do want to talk about customers as an important stakeholder for a minute because doing good for the world is also good for business. And customers want to see that and they want to support companies who they see doing things that are good. Um, I just read that for the first time, the Association for National Advertisers has a new measurement tool where they're going to rank brands by environmental and social impact. I just read it yesterday and I thought, oh, I can't wait to see where Coca-Cola is able to show up on this list. But what, what business benefits do you see from doing good? Yeah, so you hit the nail on the head. So we call them consumers. Customers for us would be the retail outlets where we sell the products, but customer, consumer, we'll use it interchangeably. Yep. So for us, we see the appeal and the interest. So I'll tell you, the business continuum for us is, it, it used to be, how do you manage enterprise risk and mitigate risk against priority issues? All the way through to, how do you potentially save money? Use less water, use less energy, you save money. Now, today, it's really where the consumer slash customer gives us credit for the, for the brand proposition and how do we drive growth. So the thing that I have found is that there's some studies that 63% of consumers say that they expect brands to align with their values or they won't purchase them. So it is, you have, the data continues to showcase that this is critically important. What we have found though, is that we can't be the best kept secret. So the other piece of our history is we were, you know, one of our founding leaders, Mr. Robert Woodruff was known as Mr. Anonymous. So he would donate land, donate money. He was very much a civic leader. But he didn't like his name associated because he thought, well, that would make us feel arrogant. We don't want to brag. Well, he also used to say, let's remain constructively discontent. So I took that to heart, actually, because what I realized today is that you can't be anonymous. People want to know. They expect to know. So how do you tell the story? So let me give you just two proof points on telling the story. When we launched a campaign called Never Settle in Poland and Greece a couple of years ago around recycling and the circular economy, we saw some of the highest advocacy advocacy scores for our brands. That means that people said they liked us better, they would tell their friends about us, and they wanted to purchase us. And we saw results follow in the marketplace. Did the same kind of campaign around World Without Waste in Australia. Highest scoring campaign in a five-year period. Remarkable advocacy for the brands and in line sales and results. So we have many of these stories, but what we've also had to be clear on is what's the global story we tell, and then how do we regionalize it and localize it to make sure it's relevant to that local community? Mm -hmm. So water might be the story we tell in Africa, but recycling is a story we tell in Europe. We're still doing all of the work around water in Europe, and we're doing the recycling work in Africa. But it's how you tell the story and which pieces of the story you tell is what resonates with that consumer. And we're excited because we've seen that consumers respond. Now they also keep us honest. They will let us know when we're not doing everything we should be doing. And we appreciate that. That helps us to become a better business. 
Thank you. Social media, where your where your consumers can give you real time feedback, especially when you're doing something that they don't like. Yes, I, that's, I wrote, okay. that's okay. I wrote down this idea of constructively discontent because that is, I mean that that's really yes. how you continue continue to push. Um, I do want to come back to one initiative that you mentioned briefly um, when you were answering the sort of overall superpowers for good question, and that's your five by twenty. Can you spend a little time just explaining that initiative in more detail? Yes, absolutely. So about ten years ago, gosh, I can't believe it's been ten years. You know, a, a group was sitting in a room. We were talking about what's important to the business and women. Women being empowered and women as a key stakeholder for us has always been critical to the Coca-Cola business globally. And so we said, well, what more can we do for women? And we said, well, how do we think about setting a goal to empower women? What does that definition look like? What women are we trying to empower? So we said, well, it's about economic empowerment to entrepreneurs. And that's where we got very focused. We created a definition with our different accounting firm partners so we could assure the data and make sure we were tracking it and delivering on it. And we started with a few small examples. And what was interesting is, is we first leaned into what I'd say would be the retailers, the small independent store owners that work with us around the world. And we said, how could we better train them around business um, skills for their outlets to know how to price products, how to do inventories, how to pay themselves, all the different logistics things you might not think about that are top of mind. And we started these training programs. And what we actually found is this focus uniquely to women actually helped our overall business. So while we were working with these women in terms of helping them to drive sales, do better inventories, take vacations, what we found is actually those applications are relevant to a lot of others but when we focused on women, a unique thing happened. We did some study with um, a company called Ipsos, and we did this in the Philippines as well as in South Africa, and had very similar results, over a 40% increase in their income after they took the training. And so that's total income for them. That's not just Coca-Cola products. So all of a sudden, we found that's an area where we could replicate and repeat, and there was something to that training that simply by bringing it in and helping and then providing access to capital, and how, how do you... How do you open an account for a loan? How do you approach bankers? How do you do all of those things? Started to unlock keys. Those businesses are everywhere from the Philippines, Europe, United States. I mean, there's so many of these stories. We also, though, looked at farmers and we looked at some of the cross-section of where our business also moves. And we thought, okay, well, there are these programs where there are lots of farmers, but they're not getting the yields that they should get for their crops. So how can they actually produce more for themselves to sell more? And then how could they actually sell in the aftermarkets? And how could they think about their business? So we started to broaden the definition beyond just having a retail account, but to farmers, to women who are collecting the water and building water infrastructure, to artisans who are taking the recycled materials that we were using and turning it into arts and to beautiful jewelry. So the list went on. And so what was really interesting is we started to build these programs. We also found something really unique. There were several women and women who said, well, I want to help other women. So all of a sudden, the women in the 5 by 20 programs, there was one lady who was in, our, in the African continent. And her husband was one of our distributors of our bottling business. He had passed away and then she ended up owning the business. We went in and, the, and our local marketplace deployed the program and taught her because she wanted to keep the business. There was a sense of pride and she ownership and she wanted to keep the business. 
So she went through the 5 by 20 program. Then in turn, she said, well, actually, I can help other women get into this business. And she ended up creating a group, a coalition of 10 other women that she trained and she taught and expanded her business, which also expanded our business. So just some really phenomenal stories. Um, one other one I love to share, because she was one of the first women that I met in 2011 when we set this goal. It's Lady Regina in Brazil, living in a favela, which a favela is not a very you know good neighborhood for some folks up sort of in these regions, but a neighborhood where there was a lot of work to be done in the community. And what Regina was, is she was the lady who was doing the recycling. She was collecting the the trash on the streets, collecting the things that other people didn't want, but recognizing that there's tremendous value in that waste. And she could actually sell it and create an income for her, her family, and, and her neighbors in order to drive this amazing business. When the teams went in and, and deployed the tools around how do you recycle, how do you separate this in the bins, how do you sell it, what's the right price in the aftermarket, who do you sell it to? All of a sudden, and I went back several years after that, she had over 700 employees. Regina's business had grown. She was the largest recycler in that region. Phenomenal. And she trained so many people. And by in turn, her one success enabled so many other people. And she also partnered with this lady, Dona Ana, down the street to run a community center to give vocational training. So, you know, the young individuals who were there because, you know, high unemployment rates for youth, you know, really probably young adults, I should say, within that region. She trained them. She taught them skills. Some of them ended up working actually for our customer locations or different accounts where we could bring in these newly trained young adults who were looking for employment. And the list goes on because then she also partnered with another group to create jewelry out of what was left over that she couldn't sell. And then she created a catalog which started to sell her jewelry around the world. And and by the way, even in some of our Coca-Cola stores in our Disney Spring store outlet, you walk in, there's beautiful display of Regina's, you know, work with these artisans. So, I mean, it's really phenomenal because what we found is that by supporting these women, they in turn were continuing to do what they always do and what we know, give back to other women in their society, give back to their communities, and really driving this true change that was required in order to see progress in society. But it was all them. I mean, it's their stories. And I simply am so proud of the fact that my company set on this journey over 10 years ago. And I have to give credit to Mutar Kent, who at the time was our chairman and CEO. And um, I will tell you that he's the reason why it was 5 million women, not 1 million women. When, when we first came in with the plans, he said, that's not bold and aggressive enough. Let's say 5 by 20, and you're going to work to get there. And then when he left in 2017, he retired from the business and James Quincy came in. What I really credit James Quincy for doing is that he kept it going and he saw the value. And he said, we will absolutely deliver on this goal. And so we just recently, when we announced that we had delivered on the goal, we kind of got them together and some of the original folks who built the program and put us on the journey to thank them. And um, and Ian Y for assuring the data and, and helping us make sure we had credibility and truth in what we were reporting out. Oh, so many chills as you're telling these stories because it's 5 million women, it's 6 million women, yet you have Regina in Brazil in 2011 and you have all of these details about what she did because even though it's so much good at so much scale, it's you get there with these individual stories that are yes. so powerful. And you are right about women. When you empower women, they empower others and they train others. And it's this amazing ripple effect 
Yes. It's, it's so inspiring to hear. And you are absolutely passionate about all of the various initiatives, but you seem especially passionate about five by 20. And I'm wondering if there's anything in your background that makes this especially one of your favorites. Thank you. So, so there is, and it's my mother. So I'll say this well, and even my grandmother. So my family's from Cuba, my mother's family. And, um, I remember as a young girl, when my mother, you know, we would have lots of lessons. She was raising me and my sister alone as a single mother. And when she left Cuba, she left, her family got divided. So some members landed in the U.S. She landed in Spain. She didn't have really anything other than the jacket on her back. And she had torn holes in the lining and put whatever she could in there to sell whatever she could to actually rekindle her sort of relationship with wherever her family went. And, and survive. I mean, this was about survival. She was 15 years old. I have a 16-year-old daughter, and I look at my daughter today, and I'm thinking, I don't know if she could survive what my mother survived at 15, right? You know. And so I have a lot of passion and interest in that. But what helped my mother survive were several things. Other women who helped her. So by, by the time she got a little bit older and she ended up coming to the United States, there were other women who gave her a helping hand and taught her and trained her. And she ended up getting, you know, she did lots of things. I could, I could talk two hours just about my mother on this, or maybe five hours. But what she did is she ended up becoming a business owner and she ended up owning a real estate company. And what she did is by doing that, she gave herself this livelihood and this income that she could control and that she knew that she was working for herself and for her family. And at the same time, always a piece of her business was about helping other women getting into their first homes. How could she, and she would give up her commission. She would say, I know she used to say, I will say her language. This is her. She used to say, I not have a pot where to pee. That was her, what she used to say. Cause when she first came to the U S she didn't. And she said, and I want to help other women who help me. And so she gave up a lot of her commissions to help women get into first time buyers programs, first time homes, really helped change their lives. And there was a lady in the 5 by 20 program out of this. Um, so Adelante is a program we partnered with in the U.S. run by Nellie Galan, another Cuban. And I just looked at Nellie and what she was doing, but she introduced me to a lady who wanted to have a real estate company. And all of a sudden, I just thought to myself, this is my mother's story. When I was hearing this other woman's story, I thought, this is my mother's story. And if other people had not helped my mother she might not have known how to get her real estate license, how to run the business, how to have access to financing. She ended up getting an SBA loan because someone taught her how to fill out the application. And I think we take some of those things for granted, but sometimes the biggest barriers are the simplest things to solve. Simply filling out an application can help someone get the access to capital they need to build their dream and to go forward. Simply someone saying, can I help you, makes the difference. And so, yes, there's a lot of what resonates with me in the 5 by 20 program, because when I look at that, I see my mother's story. I see my grandmother's story before that. My grandmother was a baker in Cuba and wanted to partner and bring in export businesses in from the U.S. And I just look at that. And I, I feel fortunate. I come from a long line of women who were really fantastic business entrepreneurs, but never gave up, had the perseverance, the persistence, and through all of that, found time to help others always helped others. And I hope my daughter gets some of that as well. I mean, I, I, you know, she volunteers today at a therapeutic program for children with autism and she's 16 years old and she loves it. I think she prefers to do that on weekends and anything else. 
And I love that about her and I hope she continues. So, so I hope there's just a little bit moving down sort of the legacy of the women in our, in our family. I'm certain, I'm certain there is. You come from such a powerful history. You are passing that on to your daughter. I, there was, you know, something in that story, it was both a moment where you, where your mom had to ask for help and then also when she gave help. And I think that that is such an re- important reminder for all of us in so many of the different situations we're in. It's okay to ask for help. And sometimes you just need that little nudge to get to the next step. And don't forget to ask others if they need help too. That's right. That's right. And, you know, and I think sometimes in business, we forget that actually asking for help is a sign of strength. It's not a weakness. And so it's important for whether you're a woman in a corporate environment or a woman entrepreneur knowing to ask for help and not being afraid of asking for help is really important. And then always remembering that there is somebody else who's probably not asking. So you should probably ask them and say, do you need help from me? Even if they don't ask you, is that little reminder in the back of my brain, I know that says, don't forget that they might not be asking, but you should offer. Yep. B, you seem so wise and (laughs) you've really, you've figured things out, but you know, as we all know, we're constantly learning. And I'm wondering if you look back at your 30 year old self, is there something that you wish she knew that you know now? Yes. There's plenty of mistakes I've made in life. I think growth really does come from mistakes. I know these all sorts of sayings there and it sounds cliche, but it's true. And so I, you know, I wish that in my 30-year-old self, I, I understood better that language does matter, how you communicate, how you share ideas and convey ideas, how you look at areas that are relevant and make sure you're asking the right questions at the same time. I wish I knew all of that because even still today, I fall back and learn those lessons again and again. I, I know when I miscommunicate and then you just go, oh, how could I have done that? And sometimes you pay a price and sometimes it just kind of goes by the wayside. But it's those moments where I look back and I say, when I was 30, I don't think I knew what questions to ask, or I'm not sure I asked for enough help. I'm not sure I offered enough help. I'm not sure that I understood that maybe a conversation I wanted to have wasn't relevant to the person I was having it with. And so I just look at all those moments and I say, you know what, I also believe in no regrets. I'm like, you know what, there are no regrets. Those are all learning moments and you just keep moving forward in life and you, you just, you know, you kind of pull yourself back up and you learn and you go through it and you just keep going. And I think that's all too important. It is so important. You said language matters. And uh, in our last episode, Diane Schwartz said words matter, same thing. And I've had those moments where I've just fired off an email and I'm like, no, there was such a better, there was such a better way to do that. And I think sometimes we're moving quickly or we're just trying to get things done. And that reminder, language matters, how we communicate with one another. That's all we have. And especially when so much of the communication in the past year has been in email and it hasn't been, I'm going to walk over to their desk and have this conversation. We have to be careful. We really do. Yes, we we do because language communicates intent. And so while you might have really good intent, if you're miscommunicating, the intent might be misconstrued. And so I think it's really important. And and I'd say, I just would add on to one thing. You have your language and how you communicate. You have your integrity. They go hand in hand, but sometimes language can actually make people feel like your integrity has been compromised. And so I think it's just a reminder. And if you make a mistake in language, admitting it and, and going back and clarifying, 
I mean, I think th- those moments are equally as important. You don't want to le- leave something on the table that you didn't clarify. If you walk away and you realize, oh gosh, I didn't communicate that as well as I could have, or maybe I didn't help them enough, or maybe I didn't ask the right, go back. Don't be afraid to go back either. I mean, I think that these are the things that language matters and you could leave someone with the wrong impression or the wrong spirit of intent if you're not communicating in the way that really connects and is truly to the spirit of your integrity. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Go back and admit, you know what? I know I could have done that better. <laughs> yes, exactly. I have done that. Trust me, people appreciate it, you know? And, yeah. and sometimes it's a really painful moment. I mean, I still get the sweaty palms and I think to myself, gosh, they're going to think I'm a terrible person, right? And I didn't mean to do that or I didn't mean to say it that way. And and then you get so nervous. And when you simply just go back and you say, hey, either I'm sorry or I didn't mean to communicate this way. Can I have a do-over? You, now, you don't always have that do-over. Sometimes you're in a panel discussion like this or a live moment where you don't get the do-over, but that's okay. You, you know, you also have to forgive yourself. And I think that that's equally important. Absolutely. We're all human. We're all yes. human. I remember when I went to the World Economic Forum for the first time, I was in so many meetings with so many powerful leaders and it would end and we'd talk about missing our kids or how tired we are or yes. how freezing it is or how we slipped on the snow. And that <laughs> reminder, like we're all human. We're all going to make a mistake. We're all going to ask for a do-over. But if the intent, if the intent is there, um, that's right. That, that's that right. So key. I have one more question for you before we pass it off to our growing list of questions. I'm peeking here in, in the Q and a, and that's around being a Latina and a woman of color. You've been named to these 25 most influential Latinas lists, which is so amazing. And I'm wondering if you have advice for other Latinas or women of color who are watching. I would say, put yourself out there. And so this is, this is not just B Perez saying this, but there's a lot of data that shows that Latinas Way to be invited to a meeting. Way to be invited to a party. We're, you know, the the culture dynamics tend to be very polite. And and what I would say is that what I learned when I was younger is that well, I wasn't going to get invited if I didn't raise my hand. If I didn't say, oh, actually, I would love to be in that meeting, even if it's just to learn. And so, as an aspiring Latina in business or in your area of expertise, I would actually offer yourself up. Don't wait to be invited. You might get invited and that's great if someone's, you know, thinking about it and being more inclusive, but sometimes it's just something that's not on their radar. And so assume that there's positive intent there, but you're not on the radar yet. So invite yourself and say, I'd really like to go. The worst that will happen is they'll say, not this time, but maybe a next time, but you'll then now be on their radar. And, and I learned that because I used to wait and then I'd say, well, why wasn't I invited to that meeting? And then one day I had someone said, said to me, someone who I now keep in touch with, who was at Coke for 40 years. And he said to me, why are you waiting to be invited? Why don't you just say you wanted to come? What was the big deal? And I said, well, because everyone had bigger titles than me. I didn't think I could say I wanted to go. And he started laughing. And I was like, why are you laughing at me? And he said, well, he said, I don't know if it's because you're a woman. I don't know if it's because you're a Latina, but get over it. And he said, he said, you shouldn't separate yourself. You should become one of that group and you should invite yourself in. And if they say no, it's their loss. Uh, that changed my mindset. And all of a sudden, I, I either invited myself or asked to be invited to several meetings. You know, dinner's off to the side. I'd say, can I go? I used to get so, so nervous to do it. But you can get more comfortable over time and you might get a lot of no's and that's okay. But at least they will remember that you asked and that maybe next time they'll invite you in. Put yourself out there. 
Fantastic. Okay. I'm popping over to these Q and A's. There's so many good ones to choose from everyone. Thank you. Thank you to this audience. These are such great questions. I'm going to start with Persephone. Uh, she says, hello, and thanks for taking the time to share your story today. My question is, how does your team reach folks at a local community level, like your recyclers, to engage them in programs? Great question, Persephone. Yes, absolutely. So because we're in 200 markets, our people are employed locally and they're part of the local communities. And so what happens within our bottling business around the world is most of the community that they're working with are their neighbors or friends, might be their relatives. And so they're reaching out on a continuous basis. What we do at a global level is we make sure that the business globally is clear on the strategy, what we're trying to accomplish, so recycling being one of that. And then what we do is we push out best practices that we found and different ways to accomplish the goals. And then the local community leaders there that run the business, they'll actually do the meetings with the local governments, the local community, the other businesses that are there and build the programs together. An example that I have of that is um, Petstar in Mexico. Petstar is the largest recycling facility in all of Latin America. That was started because when we set the recycling goals, there wasn't a lot of recycling infrastructure. There was an informal collection business, but not a formalized one. So it was a group of our bottling partners and community and government who got together and said, let's create this. And they did. And that's the largest recycling center. Petstar is doing very well only because, frankly, because it was really it was built from the ground up. It was built from that local community. So global goals, but locally built and owned. And I think that is really the power of driving the change. Thank you. Here's a great one from Amanda. She says, this has been so fascinating. Thank you for being with us today. The stories you highlighted from women across Africa and Brazil are very inspiring. How does Coca-Cola replicate those efforts and engage women in the U.S.? Does the program change based on region? Is there global knowledge sharing from the women leaders in these programs? Yes, yes, and yes. So lots of global knowledge sharing. Yes, we have programs in 90 countries, U.S. being one of those. And so the program that I referenced just a minute ago with Melly Galan, that, that actually is one of the U.S. programs. And so it was specific to focus on Hispanic female entrepreneurs. And we talked to Nelly because she already had this great um, avenue of women who she was working to support. So we recognize that by supporting Nelly's program, we would be able to touch more women. And so that's also an example of women helping others. So Nelly was helping a lot of women already. So we said, how can we better support you and those women? And there's several programs like that, including recyclers in the U.S., women who are working on water infrastructure, women farmers. And so we do. And, um, and it's for me, it's been really amazing because I've been fortunate that I've been able to go and meet a lot of these women where they're doing the work. Um, what I have found is that, you know, some people, I think there's myths and I, and I think you've hit on something really important. There's a lot of myths that well, women only in emerging markets need our support. That's not true. Women everywhere need our support. And we cannot overlook the developed countries as much as we work on emerging and developing. And so we've been very deliberate to make sure that we're touching all of the communities. And that's also why we said, well, even though we've achieved the goal, we're not going to stop. We're going to keep these programs going. And so for us, it's really, really important to make sure that we're creating these programs and platforms for women. And sometimes it involves our business and sometimes it doesn't. The thing that some people don't realize about 5 by 20 is that it's not always about the Coke business. A lot of times it's simply about the woman because we know that when women are strengthened and empowered, they do really good for society. And for us, 
if we want to stay in society as a business, we have to be welcomed in. And that's also a way to be welcomed in. Uh, be welcomed in. What a nice way to put, you know, selling a product. <laughs> Just welcome us in. There's a great question here from Monique. Uh, since COVID, there's been a huge surge in women walking away from their careers to stay home with their children. What has Coca-Cola done to encourage a better work-life balance so women don't need to walk away from their careers? Yeah, so you need policies and practices as much as a lot of empathy because I think you know or the pandemic taught us a lot, right? And so all of a sudden with the pandemic, Digital tools have enabled all of us to communicate more. But what's also happened is when you had moms who had, you know, or parents, I should say, with kids who are at home, and now you might have a family with, you know, three kids and two parents or three kids and one parent, and you need to actually help become the teacher as well as the employee, the partner, you're playing all these new roles. So how do you do it all? And so what we found is that we didn't, you know, in the beginning, I think we said, well, our people will give flexibility. They'll be understanding. And while we believe everyone wants that, we realized that we needed to be better for these women and put processes in place to help them. So they didn't have to just rely on, do they have a good manager or does this person have enough empathy to allow them that time to do what they need to do? And so we did. We actually pulled together global policies and we said, you know, please make sure that you're allowing people the flexibility to work within their constraints. So while you might have traditional work hours, you kind of need to look at this differently and allow them to get their work done when it works best for them. At the same time, you know, even now I'll fast forward all the way to some folks are starting to open offices, other offices are not open. We said, you know, for our Atlanta office, we're not going to set a return to work date until, or return to office, I should say, because women have been working, we've all been working, but return to the office is still September 7th. But even with that, we said, but it's flexible. If your job can be done at home or in a different way, do it. Because we also know that not everyone yet has an ability to take care of their children and have the right resources. So how do we help them get the resources, which is also about providing access to resources. So we started to build partnerships so women can establish emergency care, have, you know, have a, a network to be able to talk to and communicate to. We also did some funding to support women to be able to better work at home and really all employees to better work at home. Because what we found is that when we put programs in place for moms, it, it equally works for the whole family unit and it works for people even who don't have children. Mm -hmm. And so when we got very focused, we said, let's make sure we have this in place. You know, we also have parental leave programs and, and some of the traditional things you would expect. I say traditional, but I do know some companies don't have that either. So, so we believe it's sort of a team effort. And, you know, and I can tell you, I have one individual on my team where she's a superstar. I can tell you, she'll, you'll be interviewing her at some point because she will take this job that I'm in. She's phenomenal. She has two young kids under the age of, you know, 10 or 11 years old. And it's a lot. And she's in a dual working household. And I remember watching her trying to keep it all together. And I finally said to her, and just out of respect for her, I won't use her name, but I said, it's okay. You, you, don't, you don't have to do this. You can actually, it's okay to not be perfect and it's okay to miss this deadline. Just let me know how I can help. And it was also my reminder as the leader and the manager to make sure I gave that permission and said, it's okay. How can we adjust together? So we do have the policies, we have the protocols, we do have the avenues where people can ask for help and the resources. At the same time, I think it's up to each one of us to make sure that as a manager, as a leader, that we're really tuned into what our people need. Because I don't want to lose 
my talented, you know, colleague who is going to someday sit in this seat and be the person who gets interviewed because, because she simply needs some time and some resource and some energy. And by the way, I would tell all your employees, take vacations, you know, we, people really do need it. And even if it's a staycation, take it, give them the time to not check the email and to not call you back. The world yep. will not fall apart. I mean, at least not in my business. I don't believe that things fall apart. I mean, I, you know, I really do think we've got to give people time and space. Absolutely. So many gems in there, but I'm not going to repeat my favorite things because we have two minutes left and there are so many great questions. Although I will say you are modeling that behavior by taking a vacation yourself, which is so important to show your team that it is okay. I want to just give a quick shout out to Todd, to Randy. There are so many men supporting View from the C-suite and I I really appreciate your questions, but there's one question that I think is such a good one uh, from a woman to, to close this out. And it's from Lara and it says, what is Coke's best kept secret? Oh, it's, it's the people. I don't think we tell enough of the stories of our people. I mean, I can tell you, our, our people, they're the unsung heroes of all the great work that you see in the marketplace. When we're helping people in disaster relief, when we're you know, building water infrastructure, when we're working with the recyclers, when we're working with the women, it is the people of our business because what I have found really amazing is that they all care. I have, I have lived and worked in different countries. I have met so many people in my 27 years with Coca-Cola. I have never found a stranger, even if I've met them for the first time, and I've never found anyone who doesn't genuinely care about helping others and the legacy and the impact that they can leave through the work that they do. And so, you know, some people think it's a secret ingredient in the beverages. It's not. The secret ingredient, it's about the people. That's fantastic. I, I really want a Diet Coke right now. I don't know. I'm just like dying to, to have one. I feel so inspired. Thank you so much for your time. You've been so generous with your stories, with your advice. Put yourself out there. I'm walking away inspired by the possibilities for business to do good in the world, for women to do good in the world, to to pass it forward. Uh, To our audience, thank you so much for your insightful questions. I wish we could have gotten to more. Uh, You are so engaged. We're grateful for your participation. And that is a wrap on episode four, View from the C-Suite, Women Leaders in Conversation. We look forward to seeing you next month when the conversation continues. To find out more about Wong Duty's work transforming businesses through human experience, go to wongduty.com. If you're a woman in the C-suite and would like to be a guest on this show, please reach out to me at womenleaders at wongduty.com.